Hi, my name is Joel Knox. I'm the senior pastor at the Vineyard Church of Brenham in Brenham, Texas. I'm so glad you're interested in our podcast. This media is completely free to you, so you can share it with anyone else, however you'd like. Our church is located at 1401 South Bluebell Road in Brenham at the corner of Tom Green Street next to the Bluebell Creamery and across from the Bluebell Aquatic Center. You can also find us on the web at vineyardbrenham.org and on Facebook and Twitter at Vineyard Brenham. Anyway, thanks again for stopping by, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. But anyway, that was the freedom scene from, from the movie Braveheart. And just, it, it's kind of, we kind of lost something in, in not actually reading and not, not hearing the words. But, but the, the whole thing was that William Wallace was, he was a freedom fighter. He was a, he was a rebel. And this was during the time in the, in the 13th century whenever, whenever Scotland was under English rule. And as the story goes, Wallace led the rebellion and it, it eventually cost him his life. But ultimately, that sacrifice was responsible for winning the freedom of the nation of Scotland. Well, I'm continuing our, our series this morning, Fill Her Up Jesus. And the title of my message today is Freedom in Fullness. Now, I think we've all, we're, we're, we know the nation, our nation's history, right? July the 4th is the day that we celebrate our independence from England. But if you know your history... It took another seven years before the United States actually became a free nation and England recognized the United States as its own country. And the time in between, there was great struggle and great sacrifice. Now, whether you believe in war or not, and war is a terrible thing, but I think we all can agree that freedom has a high price tag. We as Americans, we believe that freedom is worth fighting for. And we also know that it seems like somebody's always trying to take away some freedom. Somebody's always trying to do something that, that impinges on our freedoms and our rights. And that's, you know, it's, it's kind of appropriate right now in, in the, this political climate. I mean, you hear one candidate and he talks about what this one's doing and you hear about what this other candidate's doing. And, and so the, the, whether it's Democrat or Republican, there's this concern of losing our rights and our freedoms. This is what Jesus spoke whenever he, he read the scroll from Isaiah when he was in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, the thief's purpose 
is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And my purpose is to give them a rich and a satisfying life. Other translations say life abundantly. And that's because Jesus fills us up to experience freedom. And we'll only discover what true freedom is in the fullness of who Jesus is in our relationship with Him. Jesus said in John chapter 8, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I like J.J. Watt. I just thought this was awesome. That, that, that's freedom, baby. Yeah! Joe's, old, Joe's an old guy. Yeah, well, yeah, he probably is. The problem for us is, is that when we get freedom, we don't know what to do with it. Some people would actually prefer a predictable life that kind of looks like a cage. I heard a story one time about this tiger. It was in the zoo, and it, it was born in captivity. And it was in this, this cage that was only about four feet. And as that, that tiger grew in that cage, it would pace back and forth. And it would turn, and it would pace, and it would turn, it would pace and pace. And, and so when this, this tiger was old, there were, there were issues with the, with the zoo. And so they, they released this tiger into a, a reserve where it could have the roam of, of the entire forest, if you will, and they noticed that when they released him, and he was, he was old, and he was, he, he was at, toward the end of his life, but he was still pacing in that little pattern that he had learned whenever he was in a cage. He didn't know what to do with the freedom that he had been given. And if you've ever known anyone who's, who's been incarcerated, they get out of, of, of jail, they get out of, out of prison, and they're afraid of what to do in, in the free because all they've known is captivity. And that's a lot like us in terms of getting our freedom that comes through Jesus. This morning we're going to be looking in, in Colossians chapter 2. Kathy was actually speaking in, in Colossians chapter 3 last week. How, how many of you were here for that? <laughs> I thought it was great. I, I, I thought she did a wonderful job, and I'm so thankful for you, you filling in for us. But we'll, we're going to actually backtrack a little bit, so, so hopefully that won't, that won't throw anybody off. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow Him. Follow him. Let your roots grow down into Him, and let your lives be built on Him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Well, to say something like that, those who've accepted Jesus as Lord must continue in Him. It almost seems like a, duh, right? But the truth is, 
there's no going back to the way things, are, things were before. Whenever we accept Jesus, we're fundamentally changed. We can't, we can't deny that we, know, that we didn't know the truth once we've accepted Jesus. I mean, that, we, we recognize that we needed something and we, we found that in Him. And so when we, when we say yes to Him, there's really no turning back. And this word that Paul uses here, and this is, this is from the New Living Translation, but the, the word that, that is used to translate the word follow literally means to live in or be submerged. So let me ask you this. How many of you are, have, have learned another language, like, say, Spanish or uh, English? Or Okay. What's the best way to learn how to speak that language? Immersion. Immersion. When you're immersed in a culture, and I've heard people talk about this. They go on a missions trip, and they end up, you know, they just get dropped off, and they, they don't know the language. And so they spend time with, with the indigenous people and they come back and they, they know this language that they, they, they didn't even know just a few weeks before because they've been submerged in it. They've been, they're, they're just soaked in it. it it's, it's all around them. They can't escape. And there's no reason to use their native tongue. So they use the new language that they've learned. Disciples and apprentices in the first century devoted their lives to live like their masters in, in order to learn and be like them. In, 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 in this country, there was a time when, when every, every kind of trade, a master would take on an apprentice in order to, to make sure that that trade continued. And the only way that you could learn from that person was to spend time with them. But it wasn't just enough to just show up in the morning at 8 o'clock and say, okay, I'm here to work. No, if you want to learn how to, how to make shoes, if you want to learn how to be a carpenter, come and live with me. Come and learn how to do this. Come and, come and essentially make my life yours. And that's, what, that's the, the image of what Paul is talking about. That's his working model. And notice the language that he uses here. He says, roots growing down and lives being built on Christ. You see, there's an expectation of maturity and growth for those who follow after Christ. It's, it's just the natural order of things. I mean, when you plant a tree and you put it out in the yard and you water it and you fertilize it and you hope that that thing grows... If that tree doesn't start showing signs of growth, maybe it's time to dig it up and put another one in its place. Right? Or it, say your children, you, you know, your kid's young and, 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 and the doctor expects that by the age of two that they're going to be so tall and they're going to they're weigh so much and they're going you know, to be able to do all these different things and you start noticing, wait a minute, he's not that tall. Or wait a minute, he, he's, he's not able to function like other kids do. And, and that, because there's something that's, that's keeping him from being able to, to mature like he's supposed to. 
And when we talk about putting down roots, some folks, when you, they hear that, it's, it, 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 they're, they're threatened by it. Putting down roots. They fear they, they're losing their freedom. You know, guys, you know, the, uh, I'm, I'm about to take on the old ball and chain. You know? The, the idea of settling down means, oh no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm about to lose my freedom. I'll never forget whenever we were getting ready to buy our house in, in Conroe. And we were, we, you know, we, we had we'd already bought a house and we'd had a bad experience there. And the idea of, of signing a 30-year a note was terrifying. I'll be paying for this for the next 30 years. I was terrified. And the idea was, was that, that somehow that would restrict my freedom. Because what if we decided next week that we don't want to live in Conroe anymore? We still have a house there, and we've got to be able to sell it, right? And so when we start talking about roots, our roots going down, you know, that, that for some people it might be threatening, but it's, it's really kind of a comforting kind of thing. John Wimber used to say, I want to grow up before I grow old. And what he was talking about there was, I, I want to be mature. You know that it's possible to grow up and, and age and still not be a, a, an emotionally mature person? It really is true. And, and there's a thing about maturity that, that when, you, when, you, when you look at at maturity, it, it, it actually has a stability about it. One, we were in the in the South this last week, and we we turned off. We we're we we're just about on our way out of Louisiana, and we were turning onto a road. And Danelle pointed out there's a tree in front of us that I, I know it had to be at least as wide as as this this little platform that I'm standing on. It was enormous. It's in the dark. We didn't, all we saw was this part of it and, when, and kind of looked out to the side and the branches are going way out and it's got these, these huge boughs in it and it's just, just this enormous tree. Well, how many of you know that if a, if a hurricane came through there, most likely that tree would hold its ground because it has matured. The roots have grown down deep and that maturity gives it the stability and confidence that it's not going to be moved. It's not going to be shaken around and disturbed. And we experience freedom in fullness as we mature in Christ. Maturity gives us confidence. Our confidence comes from a, a growing relationship with Jesus. And it also is a source of thankfulness, like Paul says, because we see what God is doing in us, and it causes us to be thankful. Thank God I'm not like I used to be. Thank God I'm not, as, not like I was five years ago, or ten years ago, or even last week. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers, and such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, 
You may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. And this brings great joy to my Father. See, it's, it, it, bearing fruit is also part of the maturing process. And that's what, that's what Jesus wants for us is, is to mature and bear fruit. Let's move on. Colossians chapter, chapter 2 verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are, are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. And when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with Him you were also raised to a new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for He forgave all our sins. And He canceled the record of these charges against us, and He took it away by nailing it to the cross. And it was in this way He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. Now, we, we live in some strange times. I think it's a little bit more strange than usual because we've got this election coming up. But there, there are people who are they're acting out and they're attempting to draw attention to themselves. They're draw, trying to draw attention to, to one thing or another, one, one political purpose or whatever. Well, it's really not too different from the time that Paul was, was living in when he wrote this letter to the, the Colossians. The churches that were, that were in the region around Colossae, they had many issues that they were dealing with within their communities. One, one group of people, they called themselves the Judaizers. They were, they were Jewish Christians. And, and they, they practiced the Jewish customs. And they believed that it was, it was necessary for a person who accepted Jesus Christ to be circumcised. Now, I, I just got to tell you this. I, I, I'm very uncomfortable about talking about circumcision, especially in front of women. And, and the thing that, that was, I, I find so, so odd about this whole thing is that, that, that this was a big issue in the church. I, I, I just I, I don't see how it, it was it, it was the issue that it was because uh, I mean that, that's an un uncomfortable topic, but it was a big deal to these these people. And then there were the Gentile Christians who tried to synergize their faith with pagan customs and ideologies, you know, idol worship and pagan feasts. And then there were those who who were into Greek philosophy. And mysticism. And 
they actually allowed that to influence their faith and their, and their perspective in terms of, of Christ and the church. And there were also politically minded people who were seeking favor and, and influence of political ruling authorities. This was all happening within the context of the church. Well, according to Paul, anyone who belongs to Christ receives his fullness, and everything he has becomes ours. So these things that, that people are fighting over are really unnecessary, and they're drawing them away from the sinner that was Jesus. And through that we see that we receive freedom in fullness through our relationship with Christ. I want to refer back to what Jesus prayed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 17. I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I was reading something this past week and, and somebody was saying there, there's one prayer that Jesus prayed that has not been fulfilled. And, and when I read stuff like that, it's like, oh, what, 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 what kind of nonsense is this? But the, the, the suggestion was that the church doesn't live in unity. You look at all the different schisms that we have. And, you know, you've got church splits and you've got, well, this group started because they didn't appreciate this or that or with, with this group or whatever. And then the next thing you know, you've got all these thousands of denominations and all these different groups and, you know, this group doesn't like this group and, you know, you can't put the Baptists with the Catholics and you can't put the, you know, you know and, and all of these, these divisions. So whenever we work together for unity, we have a part to play in actually fulfilling that prayer that Jesus prayed. There may be division. There may be all these, these disagreements and whatnot. But we can work towards unity. We can work towards reconciliation. We can work towards bringing people back together and fulfill the prayer of Jesus for unity for His church. Anyway, I thought that was cool. But there's a little more that I want to point out in this passage. Paul says... You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. God made you alive in Christ and He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in that way, He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. Now, this is a big deal. In Judeo-Christian history, there have always been two barriers between man and God. The first was the law. Now, you, when you, you say the law, well, how, how is the law a barrier? Well, the written code and, it, and its regulations, while it was intended for good, Paul tells us in Romans that, that it actually served to keep us 
from, from drawing near to Jesus. It, it pointed out everything that was wrong with us. Yeah, it, it, take, it, take it too long. Okay, thank you, thank you. Actually, it's 11.30 if anybody's watching your clock. I, I, I've, I've actually got 15 more minutes. So I uh, just want to... But the law and its written code and regulations, I mean, this is how our human nature works. If I tell you right now, don't think about pink elephants, what's the first thing you think about? Pink elephants. That's the way the law works. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. All the, all the things that the law tells us not to do, our sinful nature, it, it creates within us the urge to do it. Don't turn off that light switch. You know, that's the first thing we want to do. And our nature, because of the law, is drawn into sin. And the, the other barrier that, that existed there was the spiritual rulers and authorities. These are the workers of evil that accuse us and, and tempt us to sin. Now listen to this. God, through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, canceled the charges against us. What the law tells us that we can't, that we can't do. What the law tells us that, that we are incapable of keeping. Jesus... His death on the cross canceled that so that we're no longer held to that standard. Are, are you following me? We're not held to the standard of the law anymore. Jesus has become the standard. And then He also disarmed our accusers by taking his, our punishment on Himself. You see, our accusers said, well, you know, he's a liar, he's a thief, he's, he's all these kinds of things. Well, Jesus took that on himself, and now the, the only one that they can accuse is Jesus because he's taken that on himself. And in, in doing so, he made a mockery of them. They, they have nothing to say anymore. They have, they have no power over us. And that's what Paul is getting at. We receive freedom and fullness to release us from the shame of our past. Is anybody in here ashamed of things you did when you were younger and didn't know better? Or maybe if you knew better and you still did it anyway. Jesus frees us from the shame of our past. And that's something, I, it, it's, it's got me excited. In John chapter 8, and I think this is, this is probably the, the quintessential passage uh, that shows the, the love and mercy of the Father and Jesus. They bring the woman out and they kept him in, in a, an answer. So he stood it up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Remember that story? And he stooped down again and, and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard him say this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until Jesus, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. 
You see, the law, it, 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 the law's been canceled out. And then our accusers have nothing else to say because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus restores our dignity and initiates relationship with Him that is free from condemnation and from shame. Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. All right. Colossians... Yeah, oh yeah. I've got one last last point to make, and that's in, in Colossians verse 16. I'll read down through the end of the chapter. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days, or new moon ceremonies, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Jesus, Christ Himself is that reality. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying that they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For He holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments and grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and He has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are, are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. You know, people, and I, I include myself in this too, we argue over some of the dumbest things. Let me ask you this. Which way is the right way to put the toilet paper oh. on the toilet roll? Well, well, you, yeah, that, that's the way to get around it. You can just like prop it up on something else. But has has anybody ever had an argument about that? I've got a friend, and he's very adamant that there's only one way to put the toilet roll onto the toilet or the toilet paper on the toilet roll, and and he was really really adamant about it, and he kind of. Wow, <laughs> didn't know that was such an issue for you. Um, there's other things like, which is better, a PC or a Mac? Uh-oh. <laughs> there's only one answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, and, and, and that, that's kind of how it goes. Tastes in music. I mean, you want to talk about a, a sensitive subject, you know, there's, there's country and then there's western. You know, there's, there's rock and, well, actually it's just rock and roll. But, but you've got all these different, different styles and, and, you know, I might like one and you might not like the other. You know, it, it's, it's just the way things go. And then there, there's other stuff like, you know, in sports, which sport is the best? Or better, and this is, this is kind of a thing around here, which sports team is the best? <laughs> the, the evil empire. Uh, but anyway, 
and in politics, you know, there's the, there's the discussion of Democrat, Republican, Independent. You know, who's going to agree, agree on any of that stuff? Nobody. And then whenever we get into religion, it's, it goes like, I'm right, you're wrong. Right? I'm right, you're wrong. And then, you know, and that, that's, that's the kind of stuff that leads to church splits and things like that. John Wimber used to teach a concept that said people usually approach faith in one of two ways. And he called one the bounded set and the other a centered set. And I'm going to show you what he was talking about. The bounded set looks like this. It's, it's a circle. And it determines whether a person is in or out. And this, this usually answers questions like, are you a Christian or not? Are, are you a believer or not? Are you, are you a Baptist? Are you a Methodist? Are you, you know, you're either in or out. And faith in this kind of model is an either or proposition. And it relies on what a person believes and does. And then there's what he called the centered set. And it looks like this. This set is a central point in this case, there's a cross, and it's surrounded by all these dots. In this case, it's little, little figures of people. The central point is Jesus. The, these, these, these people represent everybody on earth. And this set is concerned whether, with whether people are moving towards Jesus or veering away from Him. Notice how the arrows are going. There's less focus in this model on behavior and more on relationship with Jesus because Jesus is the center of everything. You see that? Well, in the early church, the Jewish Christians kind of leaned toward that bounded set. You know? Consequently, Gentile Christians who were also in the church were often left asking themselves, Am I in or am I out? And they were often confused and even insecure in their faith. And Paul introduced this centered set model with Jesus at the center and those who put faith in Him have been set free from the bondage of legalism and spiritual insecurity. You see that? It, it's not about whether you're in the club or out of the club anymore. It's not about whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or, or, or whatever. It, it becomes, are you moving towards Jesus? Are you embracing what Jesus has for your life? And we experience freedom and fullness, and that gives us confidence before God, breaking the fear of judgment and disqualification. He caught up with me. The Apostle John, in his, his first letter to the churches, wrote this. There's a sure way for us to know that we belong to the truth. 
Even though our inner thoughts may condemn us with storms of guilt and constant reminders of our failures, we can know in our hearts that in His presence, God Himself is greater than any accusation. He knows all things. And then I want to read one, one more scripture and then we're, we're going to close. Because it's about time to get ready to, to eat. But John 3.16, I want to read it in a, in a little bit different translation. But, but pay attention to the words, what it says. God expressed His love for the world in this way. He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. And here's the point. God didn't send His Son into the world to judge it. Instead, He is here to rescue a world headed toward certain destruction. Dear Lord, thank You. Thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for the sacrifice that Jesus gives us has given for us and allowed us to experience eternal life. God, I ask this morning that your, your presence would be with us and that you would allow the, 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 the truth of your word just to take root in us and let us see what you have given and what you provided. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name.